say it's a privilege to be back in Campion and share this worship service with you. <clears throat> a lot of memories flood back from standing in this platform and podium and preaching many, many times. And uh, for my wife and I to be able to retire and come back to this area, we are appreciative and blessed. When my brother was five and a half or six years old, he got his first bike. It was not new. It did not have training wheels. It was not shiny. It was a bike. <clears throat> uh, Dad was out front helping him ride on the little cul-de-sac in front of our house, back and forth, learning how to ride a bike, a full-size bike. I mean, just from the get-go. I looked out and I thought, hmm, I should have a bike too. Where's mine? Uh, it's only fair. You know, as a second child, you have to kind of look out for yourself. I think the parents kind of forget about us sometimes. I don't know that I asked my dad quite as politely as that sounded. Maybe it was a bit more whiny when I said it. Maybe it was a bit more demanding with a little bit of stomp of, I don't know. <clears throat> Dad was a pastor. And as, as a pastor, he was a very wise man. And he gave an answer that he thought would be satisfying to everybody involved. And it would take care of the issue for quite some time. He said, when you can learn to ride your brother's bike, you can have your bike. He thought that would take care of it for quite a while because I was about four and a half at that time. And he thought that was much too young to try to learn to ride a bike and that wouldn't be an issue for quite some time. There was a bit of grit and determination on my part to learn to ride that bike. And uh, it wasn't often available for me because my brother was so thrilled about having a bike to ride himself. And so when he wasn't using it and I could <clears throat> finagle him to allow me to have the privilege, I would go and try to ride the bike. Dad was helpful too, <clears throat> excuse me, but you understand, at that point my legs went fine from the seat to the pedal, but there's some space left between the pedal and the ground that wasn't quite connecting there. And so I'd have to either run and jump on the bike and land on the, hope to land on the seat and then start riding, or I'd try to catch the pedal with my foot as I launched myself up. And there was a lot of trial and error, more error than I'd care to think about. But as time went on, about two weeks, I was able to learn to ride that bike. It didn't have training wheels. You know, I, we lived in deprived childhood era. How many of you can relate to that with me? <clears throat> yeah. No training wheels. They weren't those little strider bikes where you learn to coast. Aren't those cool? Oh, they weren't those little bikes that are about this tall that anybody can stand over and the wheels are about this big around. Those are great for learning. These were full-size bikes, rusty, 
brakes sometimes didn't work or maybe worked. Um, but do you know, Dad was good to his word. After he saw my persistence and trial and a lot of error, and I was finally able to ride it after a fashion back and forth down the street, I came again with that question, where is mine? Do I get one too? It's only fair. And Dad, good to his word, bought me an old clunker too. But it was mine, and I was glad to have it. I would like to say that when we grow up, we have no questions like that at all. We never have a, a whine in our voice. We never have a stamp of our foot. But we have the same question. We all ask, where is mine? Do I get some too? It's only fair. Who's going to provide what I need? Don't I get some also? Is there enough for me? Are there miracles for me? Are there answers to prayer for me? Who's going to fill my needs? And I'm thrilled to say that the miracle that we're looking at today in this series of miracle sermons is teaching us that Jesus fulfills our needs. He is the one that provides. He is the one that tells us, yes, Eric Nelson, there is enough for you. Now, I have to give credit to uh, prominent author Elizabeth Talbot, pastor, speaker, author, who wrote our devotional book not long ago. She gave a message which just stirred my heart and I've adapted some of the things that she shared in that and other resources she shared with you today. Let's pray as we begin. Fathers, we begin looking at this account in Scripture. It is there for a reason. And I pray that the reason of its being recorded and giving to us an account of what you did and the miracle that you performed would move in our hearts to trust you that you can provide just such miracles for us as well. Bless as we share this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turning your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. I'm not going to put all the verses on the screen. I figure you have a device in your hand or a Bible on the pew beside you, or there's a Bible in the pew as well. Look at verse 35. Begin reading in chapter 6, verse 35. Listen to what it says. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. I love miracles. I've always loved miracles. I remember as a child in my quiet time, if I wasn't napping or supposed to be napping, looking at Uncle Arthur's Bible stories and looking at the scenes there of miracles that took place. Miracles are all throughout Scripture. I remember looking at the picture of David and Goliath. How could a little boy strike down a giant with armor on with just a sling and a stone? How could Daniel survive a night in the lion's den? You know, when I get to heaven, I have all kinds of questions I want to find out. Did you pet the lion? Did they roar or did they purr? Or the three Hebrews that went through the fiery furnace, I want to ask them a few questions too. How did it feel? Was it hot or just real cool to be in the fiery furnace? And the hope is that as I think about miracle stories, if they happened in Bible times to these, these mega figures in Scripture, that maybe down here is a line for Eric Nelson where I can count on miracles and answered prayers as well. And that hope is for you as well. <clears throat> this miracle is the feeding of the 5,000, or as we talk about, the loaves and the fish. It is the only miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus, the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's as if to say, uh, it's important because Ma Matthew put it in, it's important because Mark, it's important because Luke had it, and it's important because John, but when all four of them put it in there together, it's like shouting a neon sign perhaps, this miracle is significant. You get the point? <clears throat> the disciples early in the chapter had been sent out two by two to go and preach and teach and work for the Lord and as they went out it was amazing they came back and said even the demons respond to us they healed the sick they preached and people were converted and so as they come back together to meet with Jesus they're excited verse 30 then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. It was an exciting recitation. Jesus, you should have seen this person. They were lame. And I, in the name of your name, told them to be healed. And they jumped up and started walking around. Or this person was blind. Or this person wasn't able to do such and such. Jesus, they were healed. And these people believed on your name because we preached and taught them about the things that you preach and teach. It was an amazing reciting of what had been going on. Verse 31. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Sometimes you can be doing so many good things and so much good work in ministry that you don't take time to take care of yourself. And Jesus is looking out for his disciples. He said, you need to rest. 
And they didn't even take time to eat. And so it says that they got in a boat and they crossed the Sea of Galilee to a place that was deserted. It's a nice idea, wasn't it? Going to a place where no one would be so they could just get a little R&R, catch their breath, replenish, and talk about and teach what Jesus wanted to teach them. It was a good plan, but they were not able to do so. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a, a good-sized body of water. Where they left from, we're not exactly sure, probably Capernaum. And they were going up to the north, north uh, area around Bethsaida to uh, rest and relax. But being that small an area, people that were following Jesus did this. Verse 32, so they, excuse me, verse 33, but the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. So Jesus is trying to get away with his disciples for some rest, and these zealous followers saw the direction their boat was headed and figured he is headed towards Bethsaida, we're going to run along on the shore on the trail that's there and get there ahead of him. Must have been a slow boat or fast pedestrians. I don't know which. But they were there when they were waiting or when they got off the ship. And the disciples and Jesus got out of the ship and said, we're off the clock now. We're not available. Just leave. No, that's not what took place. Jesus had a different reaction. Verse 34, Jesus, when he came out of the boat, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. It says Jesus had compassion. Jesus cares about every person alive. Jesus cares about each one of us, and in this scene, he cares about everyone in the multitude. He was not going to shut down his teaching and preaching and ministry. So don't ever think that Jesus doesn't care about you. He does. He has compassion for all of us, all of our needs, whether it's physical, mental, or spiritual. So Jesus began to teach them. And Jesus' teaching was like none other. You see, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes used to go around preaching and teaching and and their teaching was a whole lot different than what Jesus did. Jesus was a whole lot different than anyone else. The Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees would debate for long hours about how many angels could sit on the end of a pin. Maybe that's exaggerated, but they would argue about the most inane things. They would come to Jesus and test him about, what about this? What is your opinion about this? And it was a clue that they wanted to get somehow in a debate with Jesus about 
what he was teaching or, or that. <clears throat> they would love to waffle about a question. Instead of just giving a straight answer, they'd say, well, maybe this or maybe that. And then they were off to the races. Jesus didn't teach like that. In fact, as he taught the people, it was said in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. It was a whole different method of teaching. Jesus, when he taught, took the authority of God's Word and applied it in their daily life. Practical, personal, significant, applicable. Jesus taught that we ought to forgive, not, 70 times, uh, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He taught that we should not hate, that we should not covet. And then there are references in Scripture that say when Jesus taught, he taught with parables. A parable is a story that teaches a lesson. And it says in some places that he didn't teach without parables. He was trying to underline in the minds of his listeners points that would stay with them. He would talk about sheep. He would talk about shepherds. He would talk about seeds, you know, sowing seeds. Or he would talk about a mustard seed, which is so tiny you can hardly see it, but when it grows, the tree is massive. He would talk about the kingdom of God. He would talk about a lost coin or a lost sheep or a lost son. You remember these stories. But as the people walked around after hearing Jesus teach, when they saw a coin, there was a memory trigger that stimulated the thought about what he had taught. As they saw sheep, which was every day, it would remind them of the lessons that Jesus taught about sheep. As they saw goats, they would remember the lesson Jesus taught. So every time that he gave a parable, they would recall and were reminded of the lesson that Jesus gave. <clears throat> For him, it was like going to camp meeting. Camp meeting gathers together thousands of people, but going to camp meeting where you met and listened to the greatest camp meeting speaker you could ever want, or the greatest camp meeting speaker that you've ever heard. Hundreds of thousands gathered together to listen to Jesus. The crowd was drawn because this event took place in the spring. Mark is giving us a clue when he says they sat down on green grass there were very few times of the year when there was ever enough green grass for anybody to sit on. It was dry. Kind of like summer fields sometimes around here. But it also was spoken of by one of the other disciples or one of the other gospel writers that it was at Passover time. Hundreds of thousands were going to Jerusalem in the spring to celebrate Passover. 
Uh, in 65 AD, Josephus said there was three million Israelites going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So that's a lot of people. And there's a lot of people milling around and walking around on their way to or uh, through or something like that. <clears throat> and when Jesus started teaching, people heard that he was in this location preaching or in that location teaching and healing. And some of those people were drawn from their urgent journey right then to go and listen to Jesus. Oh, I have enough time. There's plenty of days to go and celebrate. I'll go and listen to Jesus. And it was like that camp meeting atmosphere where they listened intently. Uh, have you ever been to camp meeting when there's a speaker that's so good? You don't care if he preaches three times in that day. You're going to be at every one of his messages. You don't care if you can hardly sit anymore. You'll stand in the back so you can hear him. You don't care if you meet miss lunch or miss supper. You're going to be there because what he is saying from God's word is so touching that it feeds your soul. You're not going to miss it. And that's what it was like listening to Jesus teach. This crowd that followed Jesus was so captivated that all day long they listened and they didn't dare leave because what he taught was feeding their soul. He was giving words of life. Look back at our passage again, verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said, go Excuse me, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five loaves and two fishes. Five loaves. It's not a loaf like Wonder Bread. Five loaves. It was like pita bread. A flat loaf that was made in the oven at home with oil, flour, whatever was necessary to create the bread. Five loaves, it wasn't much. Two fish, I didn't bring the fish because they're a bit more aromatic than loaves. Andrew, excuse me, John's Gospel says that Andrew was the found, one that found the little lad who had five loaves and two fish. A little boy's lunch that was packed with loving care by his mother so that as he went listening to Jesus teach and preach, as he followed the crowd, he would have his lunch with him. Something to keep his body and soul together. You know, a little boy or a little girl has to have something to keep them going. Their motor is wound a little tighter than some of us older folks. We can skip a lunch and it won't hurt us at all. But for him, perhaps the little boy needed it. <clears throat> his mother had prepared that lunch for him. It's interesting that in Scripture, in Bible times, 
a child was really insignificant. They had no prominence. They really had no uh, significance. You remember when the children were brought to Jesus to be blessed? The disciples tried to shoo them away because they were doing really important adult stuff. And the mothers who were bringing the children were shooed away too because women really didn't have much prominence in New Testament times either. But in this story, as you read all four Gospels, the child is held in prominence in a way that was not normal in society at that time. Jesus gives this child worth. Now, in some things that I've heard and read, it's interesting in the New Testament, <clears throat> throughout Scripture actually, that there's a significance to numbers that are mentioned. In the Bible, when it gives a number, it may be referring to how many loaves? How many loaves were there? But there may be some other significance too to the numbers that are referred to. It gives a layer of significance. It gives another unique clue as to why this person ought to pay attention. Let's try a few of them out. There are four that will show on your screen. Jesus asked the question, how many loaves were there? And you said, five. As the crowd was nearby, there may be a few of them that heard, there's only five loaves and all of these people? What's that going to do? That's not enough for anybody. But in the mind of the Israelites that were gathered there, five, five loaves, may have had another hint as well. As a child, they had had Bible lessons. They had listened in the synagogue, and when they hear the word, the number five, it was like a bell going off in their mind. A good Israelite teacher would certainly give a dual meaning or an additional significance to an Israelite group. What would be five? And of course, after a while, it's like a pop quiz. They came up with the idea, Jesus is referring to the five books of Moses, perhaps. It's not a, a direct inference. Maybe it's oblique and around the corner, but maybe he's trying to help us relate to our heritage as well as the practical application of five loaves. It's not real strong. But they would have remembered the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Moses was one of the most prominent figures in their history, aside from Abraham. Well, good for him. He's a good Israelite teacher. Let's try another one. Verse 39 and 40. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups in the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Hmm. Their mind is going in circles, trying to remember what would be something in their Israelite history that would refer to hundreds and fifties. What event is like a bell going off? There's something back there that they remember, but they can't quite pull it all the way up. They're their hard drive is doing a search. He's a good Israelite teacher. There is an incident that happened. 
an event that we used to study in Bible school, an event that we heard about in the synagogue. Oh, Moses again. Moses, when he was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he had so many of the Israelites there in the wilderness, and his father-in-law, Jethro, came to visit. Do you remember the occasion? Jethro came to visit, and he looked at Moses as he was judging the people from daybreak to dusk, saying, you, what you are doing is not good. You're working yourself to death. You need to divide up the responsibility. You need to delegate the responsibility of judging the people so you're not doing all of it. You're working yourself to death. And so this reference would have been touching for these audience folks in the group, would have been touching the time when Moses divided up the leaders of Israel to do the judging in groups of hundreds, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Oh, he's a good Israelite teacher. Do you see the dual layer that's coming about? Yes, he's dividing them up, but why didn't he make them in 25 and 75? There was an application that helped them remember and helped them think of their heritage. The third one, verse 41. And when he had taken, now notice the verbs here, when he had taken the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them and the two fish he divided among them. So they all ate and were filled. Jesus took the bread, <clears throat> broke it, and gave it out to those disciples to distribute among the people. Now, if I was doing this, I'm thinking, how many people are in the crowd, it says, were 5,000 men, right? I have five loaves. Each loaf has to feed how many? Hmm. That's not a lot. And if I was going to give everyone a little piece it would be so minuscule you could hardly see it. And that's going to fill them? Not a chance. Five loaves, 5,000, this is not going to work. Matthew says not only that, but there was 5,000 men and women and children. So the whole group is about 15 to 20,000. And suddenly my calculator in my brain just fried. I can't figure out how to divide this among 15 to 20,000. It's just too much to handle. I give up. But Jesus is taking and creating food from almost nothing. I mean, what's five loaves among 20,000 people? He's creating food from little or nothing and in the minds of those that are sitting around, suddenly they're thinking, oh, food from nothing. When Israel was in the wilderness 
and they were starving, they cried to Moses, and Moses pled with God to provide something, and they found these little flakes outside under Moses' direction, and they started asking the question, what is it? You ever wonder what manna means? The word manna means, what is it? They didn't know. And so as the, the disciples are distributing broken bread and pieces out to the people, it's Jesus is creating more food out of what little was there. It was greater than what God had done for Moses in the wilderness. That one went on for a long time, but those were tiny little flakes. A miracle is taking place. How can this be, they must have wondered. Either that or they were so busy stuffing their face they didn't pay attention. I wonder at what point they really discovered this is a miracle taking place. Wouldn't you wonder? Wouldn't that be a question you'd like to know? When they caught on. Verse 43, our next one. <clears throat> and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of fish. 12 baskets. A bell goes off in their mind again, something that relates to their Israelite history that they heard about in Bible class and they heard about in the synagogue, something that refers to 12 in the significance of Israel. Ah, of course. As Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, there were how many tribes? 12 tribes. So the leftovers are a way of underlining the significance of Israel's miracles in the past of providing for the 12 tribes. Jesus did some incredible things. Jesus is not just teaching like Moses or leading like Moses did. Jesus is greater than Moses by what he's doing here. He's not just taking bread and breaking it and blessing it and giving it, he's actually creating bread. I would have loved to taste the bread that Jesus multiplied. Four times in the New Testament, in each one of the Gospels, the miracle of the loaves and fishes is prominent. Four times they are saying by their words, don't miss this miracle. <clears throat> and if you and I only had this miraculous story to study and to learn, it ought to be enough for us to believe in who Jesus was. It underlines, it validates that Jesus is the Messiah that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that Jesus is the Christ who was promised to come. He surpasses Moses by far. He is the promised Emmanuel. <clears throat> I'm sorry to say that in looking at various commentaries and resources, there's a number of them that say they don't believe in miracles, that this was simply a miracle of changed hearts. Have you heard this? That the people were just 
transformed in their hearts that they took the food that they had hidden under the blanket and decided that they would share it among everybody else and so everyone had enough and was full by that. I see some heads going like this. Fooey. That's not true. If you look at the Bible, left and right on every hand, there are miracles everywhere. If you look at the stories and accounts of Jesus, miracles are at every turn. He heals the sick. He cures the lepers. He gives sight to the blind. He gives hearing to the deaf. He gives legs to the lame. And he even raises the dead. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in miracles because that's who he was. It is insulting, it is demeaning, it is dismissive to say miracles never happened. How many of you have ever experienced a miracle in your life? Where Jesus intervenes in the course of your life, not coincidence, not karma, not no chance, not luck, but a direct miracle. And I'm sorry to say that there have been so many in my life that I can't account for them all. Jesus answers prayer. Jesus works on behalf of us. How many of you know someone whose life has been transformed because they surrendered themselves to Jesus? How many of you have been yourself transformed because you gave your life to Jesus Christ? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in Jesus? The miracle of the loaves and fishes is the point of the account here in the Gospels. The miracle gives us hope and help. The miracle says that Jesus can provide for our needs. There is enough for us, even if it doesn't look like it at times. That Jesus can help us and he can give us even more than we need. If Jesus can create loaves and fish, can he care for my needs also? Absolutely. Do you have a need? Do you have an emptiness? He can help. If you have guilt, he can provide forgiveness. If you have weakness, he can give you strength. If you have hatred, he can give you love. If you're discouraged, he can encourage you. If you're a failure, he can give you victory. If you're broken, he can restore you. If you're wounded, he can heal you. If we pray, he can give the answer. If we have sin, which all of us have sin, he is our Savior. It's like one beggar leading another to a source of food. We can all encourage each other to look to Jesus for help. So that question, where is mine? I want some. Who's going to take care of my needs? Do I get some? Is there enough for me? Are there miracles for me? Are there answered prayers for me? Who can fill our needs? This miracle teaches us that Jesus can fulfill all our needs. 
He can provide. There's enough for everyone. And I love this picture. Here the little boy can barely carry all the food that he has in the one basket. And maybe he's the one that came with just five loaves. He's got a whole lot more now. There's enough for everyone is what this story, this miracle teaches. He can fill your basket to overflowing. He can fill your life to overflowing. Jesus has been, Jesus is, and Jesus will be providing enough for you and for me. Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Is he your Redeemer? He has enough and is enough for all of us. stand while we sing this closing song. you into our lives right now to be our Savior and Lord, the one who provides all 
of our needs and more. And now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.